while we still need so much representation for East Asian Americans, in East Asia in general, there is a lot of other Asian countries and Asian people who are being left out of their narrative when we talk about anti-Asian hate or just Asian American in general. Welcome to Wusha Hasa Karen, a Bates College podcast about being Central Asian, where I openly discuss Central Asian heritage and Central Asian identity. Whether you heard of Central Asia or only think of Borat, I'm here to break down the life of Central Asians in America with you. I'm Nick Gajarski, and this is Wusha Hasa Karen. Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of Wusha Hasa Karen, which means I am Kazakh in Mandarin. I thought I used what I learned from my first semester of college in my Chinese class and my Chinese genetics to incorporate that and all of what I've learned into the title of this podcast. Um, it's kind of ironic because ethnically I am Kazakh, but genetically speaking, I'm a Chinese Mongol and Central Asian. So I thought I'd just incorporate the two, even though, as you heard in the intro, this podcast is all about talking about Central Asian-ness. I think it's really important to look at who Central Asians are in America, what roles do they play in America, and are there even Central Asians in America? And surprise, there is, because I'm here. Um, But today we're really just going to start with the very broad aspect of looking at just different Central Asian people in America, especially looking at Central Asian women in America. So I've gathered some resources, some things that we'll look at throughout this podcast, and I think it's going to be really beneficial, especially if you live around these areas. So we'll talk about two places, one that's in Boston, one that's in New York, um, or maybe just ideas that you can think of when listening to this podcast and maybe reflecting on maybe you've heard of these people or maybe you've heard of these things, but not really understanding that This does come from Central Asian heritage, and so a little bit about myself is that I was adopted from a small village outside of Kosnai when I was one. I was then brought to the United States by a white family and lived in Michigan and Ohio mostly my entire life. I grew up in very white spaces in a very white family where we didn't practice Asian culture, we didn't practice... Asian heritage. I didn't even know I was Asian until I got all the racist comments. Even then, I was still like, oh, I think I thought everyone got made fun of, for example, for their eyes or something. So I didn't know I was Asian until my friends started pointing it out. Um, But anyways, I really thought that being Central Asian is a very unique part of my identity, especially being Kazakh, because when you hear the term Asian American, I think a lot of people think of East Asia and China and Japan and Korea. And I think the media construes the narrative into the way where we think about Asian people as Chinese people, as in uh, Japanese people, as in Korean people. And while we still need so much representation for East Asian Americans, in East Asia in general, there is a lot of other Asian countries and Asian people who are being left out of their narrative when we talk about anti-Asian hate, or just Asian American in general. For me, when I was finding out about my Asian identity, I really didn't think about Central Asia. I really thought that, oh, I am Kazakh, but I look Chinese, which I ended up being Chinese, so that's kind of ironic. But 
I didn't see myself being represented, and even my other friends, my South Asian friends, my Southeast Asian friends, my West Asian friends, we all didn't see ourselves as represented as other people, um, all of our other Asian friends. And I think that was really hard. And once I figured out I was Chinese, Mongolian, a Chinese Mongol, and Kazakh, I started to realize that I was not Chinese enough, Chinese enough, quote unquote, to be East Asian, but I was also not Kazakh enough, quote unquote, to be completely full Central Asian. So it's going through this process, especially being in Central Asia, where being Central Asian and having Central Asian genetics usually means that you're a mix of a lot of different Asian identities, and sometimes you'll have some European in you, which is a little crazy. So seeing my friends who are full Chinese or full Korean is really difficult because I don't see myself being reflected within my friends. I think it's hard, especially at Bates, when there is not a lot of Central Asian people. There is one other Central Asian person here um, who's a freshman who I met who is amazing. Um, she was also adopted from Kazakhstan. But other than that, it's majority of my Asian friends here are Chinese or East Asian. And having the discussions of Central Asian hate or Central Asian racism is something I normally can't do because my friends can't relate. And even when I bring up something that I experience that my East Asian friends can't experience, and even though we all look alike, they don't understand the things that I have to go through that they don't have to go through. And so it comes up with this idea of I am appear as East Asian, but also like have this Central Asian ethnicity. And I think that's what a lot of Central Asian people in America struggle with. So I wanted to take this podcast and use this platform to emphasize and really highlight stories of Central Asian Americans, especially Central Asian American women in America, because I'm sure that you probably haven't heard of it, which is really upsetting. So I'm actually going to Boston for Thanksgiving break, which I'm super excited about because I get to see my uncle and aunt and my two cousins, and they're basically like my second family. Um, My cousin actually went to Bates, which is how I ended up figuring out about Bates and how I ended up actually picking Bates. So there is a Central Asian restaurant in Boston called Silk Road Uyghur Cuisine, which is inspired by Uyghur cuisine. And uh, Uyghur people are from China, and it's an ethnic group that has traditions that are really close to Central Asia. Um, so this is the only Uyghur restaurant in Massachusetts, which is really crazy. Um, and actually kind of sad because this is kind of like the only Central Asian food that you can find in Massachusetts. Um, so this restaurant is run by Idila and her mom, Maria, um, who come from Northwest China, and they themselves are Uyghurs. Um, they're two amazing women who make sure that the restaurant is okay and make sure it's up to date and um, serve their customers So Vice News actually did a YouTube video over this restaurant, and they have a really amazing story, which I will share um, throughout the video. Um, And then later we can discuss and we can talk about why this restaurant is so important. 
Adila and her mum Maria are Uyghurs. They come from northwest China in a region called Xinjiang. Unlike the majority of China's population who are Han Chinese, the Uyghurs are a mostly Muslim Turkic ethnicity who have their own language and traditions much closer to Central Asia. So I don't know if you've heard about um, the Uyghur community in China or around Central Asia or in other countries, but the Uyghur community has been recently getting a lot of news and got a lot of news maybe around a year and a half ago, and it's still getting news, but it got really big, um, mostly because of China's rule and how they treated Uyghurs, especially um, Uyghurs from Central Asia. So if you haven't heard about it, um, the Chinese government was building these camps in order to quote-unquote combat terrorism and put these Uyghur people and Uyghur families into these camps, um, which were really awful. Um, um, There's a big movement, not a big movement, but there was a movement in Kazakhstan called Free Kazakhs, um, or hashtag Free Uyghurs. Um, there was also hashtag Me Too Uyghurs. Um, there was um, the Boycott Mulan movement. Um, if you don't know about that, when the live action version of Mulan happened, um, they filmed it practically like the town over of a Uyghur camp. And a lot of people were like, oh, this is like really messed up because clearly film production knew about it. Um, so just some insight of what the Uyghur community is going through in China. Um, definitely something to think about um, and something that this video touches on as well. I'll play another clip from this video and um, you'll realize that this family is missing their dad because the dad was taken away and put into one of these camps. Um, so another part of this story is um, this family describing the lost of their dad and like what it's like to be without their dad um, and how the motivation for the restaurant um, is all because of their dad, which is really touching. During that time, Uyghurs' lives in China have deteriorated dramatically. In an effort to, in their words, combat terrorism, the Chinese government has sent over one million Uyghurs to sprawling prison-like camps over the last three years. Here, they're frequently interrogated and tortured, banned from practicing Islam, and forced to recite Chinese Communist Party ideology. Xinjiang has been transformed into a dystopian surveillance state. Maria and Adela's own family have been swept up in the crackdown. In 2018, Adela's father, Maria's husband, stopped answering their calls. Eventually, they learned he too had been taken to the camps. So once again, just reiterating on the importance and recognition of Uyghurs in China, in Central Asia, and around Asian, um, the Asian continent, just because this is something that, while the news did bring up, it is something that's still going on, um, and something that kind of like stopped being talked about in the media. Um, so I think it's really powerful that these two women created this restaurant um, to share their Uyghur culture and Uyghur traditions, but also like have this restaurant to advocate for the oppression of Uyghurs in China. 
So I was lucky enough to be able to sit down with Ideala um, in Boston, and she asked that I didn't record the conversation, but I did take some notes based on the conversation we had. Um, so I asked her about what it's like to be a Uyghur in America, what it's like to have a Central Asian tradition, more Central Asian food, um, instead of your typical quote-unquote Chinese culture and Chinese tradition. Um, and so she really touched on the importance of racism, stereotypes, um, and different microaggressions that one would receive if they're Uyghur or Central Asian, um, which I thought was really important. She talked about how a lot of people are seen as terrorists, especially the Uyghur community, um, because of their religious affiliation and because China is, quote-unquote, combating terrorism. So this rhetoric being used is really damaging to the Uyghur population, really damaging to the Central Asian population. Um, and how she says that we have already a stigma in America where there's a terrorism stereotype where we see some Asian countries get that stereotype or get that terrorism stereotype. Um, and that's already in America. But then going back to China, she's like, this was one of the first times where like the Chinese government was specifically saying that this certain group are terrorists. Um, and she really emphasized that she didn't feel welcome in China. She didn't feel welcome in the United States. Um, she was getting threats um, from around the globe um, saying that she was a terrorist and that her family were terrorists. I asked her what she thought about the restaurant, why she opened the restaurant, and what was the most important thing um, that went into making this restaurant. And she said that sharing the tradition, sharing the culture of Uyghurs is really important because as you can see, like during the time that this restaurant was made, the Uyghur community wasn't really being as represented. And she really wanted to share her story and talk about why Uyghur culture and um, cuisine is so unique to her, to um, the Chinese ethnic group, and to Central Asia. Because she's like, this is a group that is normally not represented when we talk about Asian American women. And I totally agree. She talked about how she, when she calls herself Asian, a lot of people are confused because she identifies as Uyghur. And then she has to use the, oh, it's a Chinese ethnic group to make it seem like, okay, so I'm Chinese, so in there for, in your eyes, I'm Asian. Um, so she really touched on the term Asian American and Asian and how it really is only represented through East Asians, um, specifically Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. I know we talked about that in the beginning, but I just thought that was something that really struck me because that's something I always thought. And like, here we have another person who doesn't really identify with the Chinese um, like race. I don't know if that's the right term to use, but she doesn't really call herself Chinese. She calls herself Uyghur. Um, and I feel like that's the same for me. I don't call myself Chinese. I call myself um, Kazakh. And so she really emphasized that America needs to start looking at how they identify Asian Americans. Um, also, another thing that she brought up was, which we'll cover a little bit later, which 
um, is kind of disappointing is how Central Asian is um, coined and like grouped together with quote unquote white people. And she was like, that's completely messed up. She was like, I have never once seen a Central Asian person and was like, oh, you're white. Um, and I mean, in my eyes, I have, but in her eyes, she definitely disagreed with how Central Asians could be grouped together as white. And she said, there's a lot of stigma that when you say you're Central Asian, that people will assume you're white. So she would get a lot of um, disagreements when, or people who would be like, oh, like Central Asian people are white, so why are we talking about it? Why do we care about Central Asian oppression? Why do we care about tradition and Central Asian culture? And when it's white people food or white people tradition. And I think that was really important because even though she identifies as Uyghur, she really touched on how Central Asian people are misrepresented in media and also misrepresented by the American government. Lastly, I asked how she felt about her identity in America and how she came to love her identity because it was very evident that <clears throat> she was very proud to be a Uyghur because she opened up this restaurant with her mom. Um, and she talked about how it was challenging because a lot of her classmates, a lot of the people she was around, um, even though they were Asian, they weren't Uyghur or they weren't majority of them were East Asian. And so she had a hard time connecting with these groups, but she found a little group in Boston um, and was able to find a community and have this restaurant where even though some people, or even though people who would come in weren't Uyghur, they were able to re talk about the culture. They were able to um, be proud of the culture. So that's how she really found herself. Um, throughout this restaurant, which was really cool. So this is not a promotion or anything, but if you have a chance, if you're in Boston, I highly recommend going to the Silk Road Weird Cuisine. So next, um, we're gonna actually talk about another restaurant um, that's in New York City. So all you people who aren't from Boston, but go to New York City or live in New York City, um, here's a place in New York City that you can go to. So the second place in New York is called Logman House. Um, and it's the only restaurant in America that serves Dongan cuisine. So the Dongan people are people who have came from Chinese women who married um, Arab Muslim silk traders on the Silk Road. Um, so they faced oppression in China and eventually immigrated to Central Asia um, and settled in places like Kazakhstan and Gagasan. Um, so in this case, um, this family opened up their restaurant and they immigrated from Kazakhstan, so go Kazakhs, to Brooklyn. Um, so the whole family runs the restaurant, which is really cute. And the mom and the daughter um, shot Gosholt is a mom. She really emphasizes um, how women, in this case, um, prep food and how they um, make food and how like it's tradition to teach the girls how to cook. 
Um, so I thought that was really interesting. So um, Vice, again, did a YouTube video on this um, Lagman house um, in New York City, which is so cool because Vice is just really killing the game with this. Um, so I'm going to play a clip really quickly. Um, and I just thought this clip, we're not going to go in much detail as last time, but this clip just like kind of emphasized the importance of like working together as a family and what um, the son came to like figure out working like together. <laughs> working as a family with my brothers, my sisters, my parents, and my, my fiance, it feels like a unity. My dad brought up the op opening our own restaurant. It's, it was, what, five years ago, maybe. We wanted our own part of American dream. So once again, um, I just thought this was a really cool thing that um, Vice covered. It's something that not a lot of people hear about. It's another taste of Central Asian culture in America. Um, funny thing is that my friend actually sent me this video. Um, and this was the first time I've ever seen Central Asian food in America, like represented on YouTube, represented on media. Um, which is crazy because my friend sent it to me like last year. So that was amazing. And so now this YouTube video has like a very special place in my heart. Um, but I think it was just really cool to see how this family worked together, how um, the woman in the family also had this really strong aspect of making sure the restaurant was okay, making sure that everyone was doing their job make, and like preparing the food, which is obviously the most important part of the restaurant. I just thought both of those restaurants were really important to share because food is a really big aspect of culture and traditions, um, especially I feel like in the Asian community, um, it's really where people are brought together as a community and are able to share their emotions, their feelings, and just talk about their heritage and identity. And so, when I grew up, well, when I was in Ohio, I had um, a friend who was Uzbek, and her family was all Uzbek. So it was really fun going over to her house and eating Central Asian food because I didn't really have that because I grew up in a white family who didn't want to cook Asian food. <clears throat> and when I mean Asian food, I mean literally anything Asian. Um, so going to her house and eating Central Asian food was something that I really valued. And I don't think I really took for granted and like really appreciated until afterwards because during that time I was still figuring out who I was um, and so yeah being Asian was kind of like what I was going through at the moment but like being Central Asian was something that I still hadn't like appreciated yet of my identity and so all I want to do is just go back to Ohio and eat a Central Asian meal with them um, and so I think coming to Bates and was kind of hard because I didn't have that Central Asian community um, that I had back in Ohio. And by community, I mean four people. Um, but it was still something that I really look back at and appreciate. Um, but we see at other schools that some schools, such as Harvard, have Central Asian student associations. Um, so there's something called CASA, CASA Harvard. Um, and it aims to represent Harvard students from Central Asia. Um, so it's really cool. Um, I'm really jealous that we don't have that at Bates. And I mean, if we did have it at Bates, we'd have like two or three people, including me. Um, so it wouldn't be fun. 
But this is just something I thought I would share because I feel like there's not a lot of representation um, of Central Asian students in college. Um, so I thought it was really cool that Harvard does this, and I guess they have a lot of people. Um, so the club seems to be really cool. They really focus on Asian traditions. Um, and so they also try to like further dialogue on like conversations in Central Asia and Central Asian Americans. Um, so one of the people who runs um, Casa Harvard is um, a woman called Nargis, Nargis Casanova. And she's a senior fellow. She's on the program program on Central Asia. And she also does Russian and Eurasian studies. And so she's a really cool person. And she's really, really talented. Um, so she got her PhD in Japan. And then she her research focuses on Central Asian politics and security um, and some other stuff, like Talk to, talking about in Asia, but I just thought that was like the coolest thing ever. Um, and so she writes a lot of different like things, news articles. Um, so one of them was called To Foster Peace, Build a Wall or Break It Down. Um, and so it's kind of talking about um, conflicts in Central Asia. Um, so I just think it's really cool that, that Harvard has someone like this, um, has this like strong amazing Asian woman and talking about the problems in Central Asia, talking about conflicts in Central Asia. And her research even focuses on Central Asian politics. Um, so if only I could go to Harvard to meet her, that'd be super cool. Um, surprisingly, Harvard isn't the only place that has a Central Asian or Central Eurasian studies. Um, so Harvard has one. I also found one at Indiana University, which is kind of random. Um, so this program specifically focuses on Mongolian, Tibetan, Central Asian, Iranian, Turkish, and Central European or Baltic studies. So it kind of goes in with all of the um, different Central Eurasian continents and people, um, not continents, like countries. Um, but um, they also talk about um, the minorities in these regions and how um, they're oppressed within Russia and China. So I thought that was really um, good. I looked at the current faculty and there are a lot of women on in the program, which I thought was super cool. I don't want to make any generalizations based on anyone, but it does seem like some people could be Central Asian just based on the name. It does seem very Russian, which um, you'll see in Central Asia that like a lot of people do have Russian names um, or like Russian sounding names, um, just because, you know, Central Asia used to be part of the Soviet Union. Um, so I think I just wanted to bring up those two um, examples of like Central Asian representation in college because there isn't a lot in um, it's really disappointing to see that many universities, especially big universities with Asian populations, um, don't have resources or like studies about Central Asian culture. Um, so I just think it's kind of sad um, that we live in America and once again, Central Asians are left out of the narrative. Um, so actually there's um, a YouTuber named Salta who 
lived in the United States, and she went to the University of Chicago um, for her studies. And she talked about in one of her videos how, like, five years in the U.S. changed her. Um, so she grew up in Kazakhstan and lives in Kazakhstan now, but she went to the United States. Um, and so she talks a lot, a lot about, um, like, just simple things, like how people are nicer <laughs> in the United States and, like, people greet you more. But, and maybe that's just because it's Chicago. Like, the Midwest is known to be like that like more greeting and then I go to like the Northeast and it's different but um, in this video she there was one part that I thought was really interesting when she talks about like what she wore and how um, in the United States she could wear like sweatpants and no one would look at her but then in Kazakhstan if she wore sweatpants like her relatives would be like oh maybe you should dress nicer so I'm gonna play a quick uh, a quick clip from one of her videos. But that leads me to my next point. Is actually, it's related to feminism. What I learned in the U.S. and what changed me in the U.S. is that I learned that I have more rights as a woman. Um, there's not that much power to women in Kazakhstan, but in the U.S., you know, you can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. You can dress however you want. And that's something that I appreciate a lot. I did take with me to Kazakhstan, so... I'm not limited by all the stereotypes, by all the beliefs in Kazakhstan about women, even if there are still some kind of, you know, things that are confining for women here. But I know that I personally can access, you know, the entire world and I don't need to be just listening to like one side or one country telling me what to do as a woman. But that's not available to everyone in Kazakhstan. So I wish they could learn that they have all the rights they can be whatever they want to be basically if they're not just confined by one country and that basically so i think that was something interesting that i found because um, i know there like feminism in the united states there are still lots of um protests based on feminism in the united states and women's rights um so i just thought it was really interesting that uh solta really touches on the topic of like the freedom of a woman in the United States and comparing it to um, her like experience in Kazakhstan and how it's very different to be a woman in the United States versus um, a woman in um, um, in Kazakhstan. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting to see how the dynamics are different between the boat between the two countries. So another example of um, like Kazakh women, both these women are Kazakh. Um, or all these women are Kazakh, are, is something called um, this church and, like, group of people did something quote unquote, called, quote-unquote, the great, greatest exchange, which I don't know how I feel about that. Um, but there's basically eight young women from Kazakhstan um, that came to the United States um, to learn about American culture and to, like, talk about... Kazakhstan and teach Russian to other people. So I thought this was really cool. They were all um, women and they hosted when the final day, which is where this article um, is like based on, is their final day in America where they eat Kazakh food and talk about the 10 weeks they stayed um, and like learned about the United States. So one of the girls actually grew up in an orphanage so that kind of touched my heart 
Um, and she came to one of the reasons she came to America was because she wanted to work to earn money and to provide for herself and also improve her English. Um, so I thought that was really cool um, that she decided to come to America because of those reasons. Um, I do think that calling this um, one of the people who founded this, who call it the greatest exchange, is a little weird. Um, just because it seems like this is not necessarily something I would call an exchange. Um, and I know like that use, that word can be used to like talk about um, people coming to America, but I just like foreign exchange students, but I just don't really like the way rhetoric is used around that. However, it's still cool to see that people, um, especially Central Asian people, are coming to the United States to like look at the culture and kind of test the waters. Um, so another example of this is a um, Kazakh woman named Jamel, and she came to the United States um, just for like the summer just to test it out, but she realized that she really liked working in the beauty industry in America. Um, and so surprisingly, she said, um, according to Kaz Kazakhstani woman, the beauty industry in America is less developed than in Kazakhstan. Um, and she was talking about how people wouldn't pay as much money to get like eyelash extensions or something. But in Kazakhstan, beauty is a really big thing. Um, so she just talked about her experience working in the beauty industry in America. Um, and she said besides like big cities, um, the beauty industry was really low in America. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, and she thought that Kazakhstan, like the Kazakhstan beauty masters, do a much better job than the people in America. So I really wanted to discuss just those three things I found which were really interesting, all kind of depicting the same thing about coming to America um, as a Kazakh woman and their experiences. So we're going to take a quick break. Um, but we're going to come back and talk more about just Central Asian people and Central Asian women. Hello, everyone. Welcome back from the break. Um, we're just going to dive right back into Central Asia and Central Asian people and women. Um, so I was going to include this before the break, but I kind of thought um, it transitions into another topic that I wanted to discuss. Um, so we're just going to start off with it. So there was a high school student um, named Edna who came from Central Asia, um, and she does a TED Talk discussing the misconception, misconceptions that she had coming into the United States. Um, and so this is a really interesting TED Talk that I encourage you all to listen to, but we're going to just play a certain part about uh, from it, and then we can discuss it. My American friends assume that Central Asians are morally backward in large part because they have seen Central Asian characters portrayed their way on TV. So, um, here, Aidan is really talking about how Central Asian people um, are commonly misconstrued due to media. And I know we kind of talked about that before and how stereotypes exist. Um, and really, I think just that little line just really 
um, provides an impact of what media and what TV and what like film can do to a community. Um, so she's going to give an example from the film Borat. Um, just a fair warning, there is going to be a slight mention of sexual assault. So if you want to skip over the next minute, if that is something that um, could be a trigger, um, that is completely okay. And I'm about to play it right now. The most popular example is the movie Borat. The fictional Central Asian character Borat laughs when telling a story about a woman being raped and a handicapped person being put in a cage. He makes racist jokes to the uh, Roma people, who he refers to as gypsies. Because Americans observe these behaviors by a fictional Central Asian character who was actually invented by an English comedian, they assume that those behaviors are true of Central Asians. Of course, other Americans know it's not true, but they don't have any other frames of reference. So just talking about it again, I think that um, it's really important to look at how media plays a role. Um, and I think it's amazing that she brought up this misconception that people have about Central Asian people because it's usually not discussed. Um, and so hearing about it in the TED Talk was incredible because I never thought I'd find something like that. And we all know about the movie Bora if you heard about Central Asia and um, just Kazakhstan in general, that's usually what people will ask a Central Asian person um, when they say they are Central Asian, like, oh, you know about Borat, um, which is just really stupid. So I think that TED Talk gave a great transition into um, Borat in the sequel. So there's actually so much controversy with Borat, which isn't surprising, um, but especially with Borat 2. Um, so there's an article um, posted by Salon.com discussing Borat 2 and how it battled misogyny. Um, so I personally have not seen Borat or Borat 2, and it is definitely something I don't choose to watch um, or I'm not going to watch unless maybe it's with a Central Asian person. But other than that, I don't think I'm going to watch it. So um, in the Salon article, um, we see that they kind of discuss how Borat might be feminist, um, like Borat 2, which is really weird because you just heard about all of the things in the TED Talk that were really messed up. Um, but in this case, once again, I have not seen Borat 2, um, they discuss how the America treats women badly and discuss the problems with that. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting topic that they brought up in um, Borat 2, especially a movie that usually has a bad reputation on Central Asian people. There is another article um, from the independent.co that also discusses Borat, but in a different way. Um, so their conclusion was that... <clears throat> If the racism and sexism can no longer even justify itself as a mean to an end to expose some greater truth, isn't it just racism and sexi sexism plain and simple?
So this article thought that even though the racism and sexism is kind of highlighted and it could advocate for the misogyny in America, there is still sexism pre present in Borat and Borat 2 that while it could start a conversation, it still has a negative effect on Central Asian people and just as a whole as sexism and racism. I'm going to play a clip from the first movie, Borat, and um, this supposedly is a scene talking about feminism. In Kazakhstan, it is illegal for more than five women to be in the same place, except for in brothel or in grave. In USNA, many women meet in a groups called the feminists. I find them all. Chenkuyi. So what that means that this feminism? It's the theory that women should be equal to men in matters economic, now, you are laughing. Yeah. That is the problem. Do you think a woman should be educated? Definitely. But is it not a problem that a woman have a smaller brain than a man? That is wrong. But So we can see that in the first movie, this is extremely sexist and misogynistic. Um, and also paints the picture that Kazakh people or Central Asian people in general could believe in like misogynistic ideas um which isn't true and it can just create a lot of bad stereotypes against central asian people um and also as said in the ted talk before this character is played by an english person it's they're not even kazakh so it just makes the movie even worse so looking at a more positive um representation of Woman, Central Asian woman in entertainment is um, Sylvia Nassar, who is an Uzbek German-born American journalist, and she wrote A Beautiful Mind. If you don't know what A Beautiful Mind is, it's basically a book written about someone who um, has schizophrenia and their journey through life with it, and there's a movie about it too, which is absolutely incredible. Um, her mother is German and her father is Uzbek. Um, so her family Im immigrated to the United States um, and then they moved back to Turkey. Um, but yeah, I just think it's really impressive in that this author is Uzbek and this story is actually really well known, um, A Beautiful Mind. So, and I never knew it. So that was really cool. Another person is Malika and she is a Tajik American dancer. Um, go Tajik. Tajikistan. Um, I know we haven't really talked about Tajikistan. It was really hard to find Tajikistanian Americans throughout just his, just in like in America. Um, we really only see Kazakh Americans being represented. Um, and even in that case, there's really nothing um, which we've talked about. But, so she is known for her Queen of Tajik in Oriental dance. So she did a lot of dancing in Asia, in uh, Europe, and she actually was in a Bollywood movie. Um, but after the collapse of the USSR, her family moved to Queens, New York um, to escape the turmoil and poverty in Tajikistan. But she continued her dancing career in America and opened Malika's International Dance School 
um, to teach young girls how to dance. Now it's unclear if this dance studio is still open. I think Google Maps doesn't say it exists, but then there's a Facebook page and on danceschools.com it says that it does exist still. Um, but even if it doesn't exist, I still think it's really cool that this um, Central Asian woman was able to open up a dance studio and teach what she's learned, um, especially like Tajik dances, um, to children. So I think it's really important to celebrate and recognize Central Asian women who have made an impact in America. Um, we've talked a lot about different people in America and Central Asian women in America. Um, and I just think it's really cool to see these individual women who I've never uh, knew about and who I never really looked into um, make an impact on America. Now, there are some ways um, people celebrate Central Asian holidays. Um, for example, there is the Spring Celebration, um, which is a Kazakhstani tradition. Um, so oddly enough, the University of Arizona posted something about this. Um, they had a celebration back in 2015, um, and it was just a holiday to talk about um, the Kazakhstani holiday, and it was actually really cool. They did a lot of traditions, and a lot of people showed up, so I thought that was really interesting because out of everybody, I was not expecting to see the University of Arizona participate in this. Um, and then... There is another holiday that is usually celebrated by all of Central Asia. Um, and so this is the Persian New Year, and all of Central Asia can celebrate this, um, but it also is mostly focused on um, Iran and other South Asian countries. So it's kind of a combination of um, South Asia and Central Asia and parts of West Asia, um, which all celebrate this holiday, which I thought is really cool. Um, so, um, in this case, they, the Jerusalem Post talked about how they hoped that more people will celebrate in the United States, um, to kind of bring the microaggressions in racism and stereotypes to kind of a stop in, in hope that other people recognize um, the new holiday, or not a new holiday, but a holiday that a lot of other people in America celebrate um, in trying to bring some positive light to it. So you might be wondering how Central Asians, or why some Central Asians come to the United States. Um, I know we kind of talked about it before, but um, there's a port done by Ajar Chekarova. Um, she's a PhD candidate of the Department of Political Science at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And she talked about Kyrgyzstani immigrants um, coming to America and just immigrating outside of um, Kyrgyzstan. And so she, one of the things that she talked about is that um, Central Asian migrants similarly benefit from being associated with East Asian migrants who are stereotyped as hardworking and high-achieving quote-unquote model minorities. Um, but in American news media, um, Central Asian migrants make rare appearance, um, and if it's due, it's often connected to crime and terrorism. Um, so this is really important because I feel like a lot of people don't understand the terrorism aspect of being Central Asian and how 
usually the stereotype is not, you don't think about it as like, when we talk about the stereotype of being a terrorist, usually Central Asians aren't brought up. And people who aren't Central Asian or typically East Asian people don't understand the fact that Central Asian people are called terrorists, terrorists a lot. Um, and so if you didn't know, um, in 2013 with the Boston um, Marathon, the Boston Marathon bombing, um, it was two Kyrgyzstani American brothers um, who were identified as the Boston Marathon bombers. And so as a result, I th as you can imagine, the image of Central Asian immigrants um, was linked with terrorism. And it's also um, linked with the Muslim immigrant communities. Um, so it's not ideal for Central Asian people and Central Asian immigrants. Um, I myself doesn't, don't really classify myself as an immigrant because I was adopted even though I was not born in the United States um, and quote unquote did immigrate here. I don't qualify myself as an immigrant because I didn't experience the same things that other immigrants experience. Um, but she points out how in Kyrgyzstan, um, there was a wide, there's a lot of violence against women, violence against LGBTQ community, and other like social intolerance of ethnic and religious minorities. Um, and so this creates people to leave Kyrgyzstan and leave other Central Asian countries to the United States and hope for a better life. Again, Ajar really wanted to use this data analysis to look at how Central Asian people, especially Gurgasani people, are represented in media, um, why Gurgasani people immigrate to the United States, um, and kind of talk about, once again, how Central Asian people are represented as terrorists in America. Um, I think it's really hard to see and look into the facts. Um, I would cut this part out, but I think it's just, I'm just at a loss of words for the amount of evidence I found for the stereotype that Central Asian people are terrorists and how so many people, so many even Asian people don't understand that that stereotype exists against Central Asian people. Um, speaking from personal experience, when I tell my East Asian friends um, the fact that I've been called a terrorist, um, they're like, oh, well, like, you look East Asian or you're Chinese, so it, like, that doesn't, you, or that doesn't apply to you, or no, you haven't. Um, and it's kind of like they don't see it. And I think it's so hard to tell people that I'm not fully East Asian, I'm Kazakh, I don't experience the same things, or you don't experience the same things that I do as a Central Asian person. Um, so I think just a big takeaway from this article was just realizing that people are still going to be ignorant towards Central Asian people. Um, and Central Asian racism and stereotypes 
which is so messed up and it hurts me that even some of my own East Asian friends, even my, some of my best friends have told me that I can't experience that stuff because I simply look like them. Um, and it kind of just washes out my ethnicity. And there are still stereotypes and racism that are occurring even in present day um, that a lot of people look over and don't realize that it is racism or um, microaggressions towards Central Asians. So like an example of this would be, um, I don't know if any of you guys have heard about it, but um, President Biden recently nominated um, Professor Omarova and to be the comptroller of the currency. And so she is Kazakh American. Um, and if she gets the role, she would be the first woman, the first immigrant, and the first person of color to have ever taken this role. Um, so as you can imagine, being, she grew, well, she grew up in Kazakhstan. Um, and during the time, it was still part of the USSR. So I'm sure you can imagine everything or what stereotypes have already came from that. Um, so in this article from the Radio Free Europe, um, people who were critics of her nomination have pointed to her past statements and said, call them radical or that she's a socialist. Um, and then on November 18th, there was a Senate hearing and Republican lawmakers were grilling her um, and asking about her time in youth organizations that supported the Communist Party, even though she had no say in that because she was a kid. Um, and just for clarification, I don't know anything about economics and we're solely not going to talk about the economics part of this. So um, we're not really going to talk about what her policies are, what she wants to do for the economy, what she wants to do with the bank, because um, that's not something um, that's not something we should look at. We're more looking at um, that this is a Kazakh American being asked um, by the president to be the controller of power or controller of um, currency. And so there has been news coverage on this, but like a lot of news networks are doing it. Um, but surprisingly, like it's not the racism that people are using are not being called out. I'm going to play a quick clip from MSNBC um, and it just kind of discusses what is going on. Of the currency is a job in the Treasury Department established during Abraham Lincoln's presidency. The first controller of the currency, Hugh McCullough, like Abraham Lincoln, was not a college graduate. The last Senate confirmed controller of the currency appointed by Donald Trump was at least a college graduate, but like me, he was no more than a college graduate. And that was good enough for every Republican senator to vote to confirm Joseph Odding, who is now living in Las Vegas, where he owns a golf club, tennis facility, and spa. President Biden's nominee for controller of the currency is Professor Saul Omarova, whose previous service in government was in the Treasury Department for Republican President 
George W. Bush. Today, Professor Omarova, the most academically distinguished nominee for controller of the currency in history, who was born in Soviet-controlled Kazakhstan, faced an ugly challenge from a Republican senator who is always lying whenever he says the words, I don't mean any disrespect. So before we get into what that senator said, um, I think it's important to point out how Professor Omarova is very highly educated. Um, and as we said before, the, the current or the, few, the past comptroller of the currency was just had a college degree, which is totally fine. And but, and but the fact that we have Republican senators still grilling her, and it seems, and she's way more qualified, it's just crazy. So on the Cornell Law School website, you can actually find her. And her education is she has a diploma or like a BA equivalent from Moscow State University. And she got her PhD at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and she got her JD at Northwestern University School of Law. So she's clearly qualified in the Republican eyes standards um, to have the job. <clears throat> so you'll see um, in this clip I'm about to play from um, Forbes Breaking News, um, someone, one of the senators being like, oh, or I don't mean any disrespect and then proceeds to say something disrespectful. But I don't mean any disrespect. I, I don't know whether to call you professor or comrade. Senator, I'm not a communist. I do not subscribe to that ideology. I could not choose where I was born. I did not, I do not remember joining any Facebook group that subscribes to that ideology. I would never knowingly join any such group. There is no record of me ever actually participating in any Marxist or communist discussions of any kind. My family suffered under the communist regime. I grew up without knowing half of my family. My grandmother herself escaped death twice under the Stalin regime. This is what seared in my mind. That's who I am. I remember that history. I came to this country. I'm proud to be an American. And this is why I'm here today, Senator. I'm here today because I'm ready for public service. So essentially before this, um, before Senator John Kennedy said this, um, he asked um, Dr. Omarova um, if she was part of a communist membership um, a youth communist organization, and she kind of talked, and she talked about how it wasn't a choice and how everyone had to be part of it. Um, and then he asked for a letter of um, resignation from the party, and she's like, "Well, you kind of just grow out of it because it's a youth organization." So, and then you heard all the things that he just said, um, and you heard Dr. Amovera's response. Um, and I think it's the one line that really stuck out to me was from Dr. Omarova when she said, I'm not, or I can't control where I was born. 
And I think that's a major issue for all Asian Americans that like, because of this ideology, um, sometimes like I can't control where I'm from or I can't control who I am. I can't control my race. I can't control where I'm born. It creates racism that other people inflict on us. And like she said, she can't do anything about it. And she wishes that she didn't have to go through this, but these senators are picking apart her childhood as if she had any control. And it's absolutely disgusting. So if you do hear people talking negatively about Professor Omarova in a racially and ethnically um, way, I really encourage you to speak up and use your voice because we see all these like white men attack a woman of an immigrant woman of color. Um, and it's just really unsettling um, to see this and see how, once again, like the Kazakh narrative in the United States is that um, like we're bad people and it's not true. Um, so kind of wrapping up, there is a book called Building a Bridge and a Kazakh adoption story by Elizabeth Evans. Um, and so Elizabeth Evans grew up in three different countries in Asia um, and she was eventually adopted and this book kind of like reflects the struggles with adoption and um, how she, or the feelings she had in the aftermath of adoption. Um, so I'm probably gonna read it. I haven't read it yet, but it says people have liked it so far. Um, but it seems like a really interesting book. And I didn't realize that like this book existed because usually adoption stories are usually written about East Asian adoptees. Now, that was a lot to take in. We kind of jumped around and talked about different aspects and different um, ways Central Asian people, especially Central Asian women, are seen in the United States. Overall, I think the major takeaway of this is to keep educating yourself on Central Asian um, racism, stereotypes, microaggressions, and also like enjoying the culture, enjoying knowing that Central Asian people exist, knowing that Central Asian tradition exists. Um, and I really hope when you use the term Asian American or use the term Asian, that you think about Central Asia too because I feel like so many people don't, and we need to get to a point when we talk about Asian American, that we're not just talking about East Asia. And that's it for Wushahasakran. Thank you for tuning in and listening about Central Asian people, Central Asian identity, and having these hard discussions that we need to have about racism and stereotypes. Music was brought to us by bensound.com, and I will be linking all of my sources, and we're excited. Hope to see you next time.